0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to Ocean Currents on KWMR. This monthly show dives into the depths of the ocean and reveals the secrets of what covers 75% of our Earth's surface, the ocean. On this show, we talk about ocean research, discoveries, and ocean policy, and how we humans can get involved in protecting it. My name is Jennifer Stock, and I bring this show to you once a month from NOAA's Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary. And if you're interested in hearing past shows, we have archives available on our website at cordellbank.noaa.gov. Today on our show, we have an interesting topic of um, a large size. If you ate and grew in a similar way as our subject on the show today, you would be eating and digesting 50 to 60 meals every day, and you would grow one foot in length every day. By your first birthday, you would be larger than a blue whale. The Humboldt squid is the topic on ocean currents today. Stay tuned to hear about this elusive and fascinating invertebrate and what scientists are learning about their role in the ecosystem. The Humboldt squid is one of the larger squid species that we know of that can reach 120 pounds in weight and lengths of up to 9 feet long. That's with their tentacles. They predominantly live in more tropical waters than around here, but in recent years, they've been making a regular appearance in northern California waters. They've been seen offshore of Point Reyes at Cordell Bank and even further north into Oregon, Washington, and Alaska. I have Dr. William Gilley on the phone with us today. And Dr. Gilley is a professor of marine and organismal biology at Stanford University's Hopkins Marine Lab in Monterey. His current work includes field studies on the Humboldt squid. Previously, his work revolved around the complex nervous systems. Most recently, he has been working with the Tagging of Pacific Pelagics Group, <clears throat> Excuse me, and have been attaching pop-up tags to squid to find out where they are spending their time. Welcome to the show, Dr. Gillie. You're on the air.
1: Oh, hello, Jennifer. Uh, great to be on the air.
0: Excellent. Also in the studio, I have Ken Baltz from NOAA's National Marine Fisheries Service, based out of Santa Cruz. Ken is an oceanographer in the Fisheries Ecology Division for NOAA. He has an MS in physical oceanography, and his interests study interests studying the Physical oceanographic impacts to fisheries, primary productivity in the California current system, Pacific groundfish, Humboldt squid and maritime oil spill response. So, welcome Ken. Thanks for coming in the studio today.
2: Hi, Jenny. Thanks for having me.
0: So, this is a really a nice treat to have two people that are really studying an animal that has been so intriguing to me um, being with the Cordell Bank Sanctuary and this animal's mysteriously been appearing where we haven't seen them before. Unlike the Loch Ness monster and mermaids, this sea creature is not mythical. It really exists and in monstrous sizes. When people first hear about sightings of big squid, from Humboldt squid up to the elusive giant squid, Arctuthis, it inspires a gut reaction in most people. So Dr. Gillie and Ken, my first question for you is, what was your gut reaction when you first became acquainted with this organism? Dr. Gilly, why don't you start? <laughs>
1: um... I had uh, known of the organism for a long time, but I went down to Baja for a number of years trying to find them in the Gulf of California. And <clears throat> wasn't able to until, um, oh, the early 90s, actually, I guess it was. And, and uh, I f- sort of stumbled on them accidentally in a little fishing village uh, late at night because uh, we had a camp out there because of bad storms and whatnot. And I was just amazed. The I, I, first time I had seen this squid, in the flesh, and and there were just thousands of them being unloaded from little boats into a waiting truck, and it was it was just an amazing uh, discovery that first time. It was really exciting.
0: And then, uh, and then, you... the
1: first time I ever saw uh, well, these weren't living; they were <laughs> they uh. were already caught. And uh, a few that di- maybe the next day we went out in our little boat and caught some with the fishermen, and uh, that that was really exciting to see the first one come up. And uh, it's really kind of eerie when you see them come up out of the water at dusk, because they're definitely sort of monster-like looking, that's for sure.
0: And is this what inspired your further studies in your career?
1: Well, I'd been going down to um, Mexico uh, camping and fishing in this area for a number of years, and then when I found these squid, I thought, oh, wow, I've got to think of some way to work on these, because this would be a great place to do this. And, um, And so in a way, that was the beginning of that research career, but as you say, I've been working on squid for many, many years before that, but mostly uh, little nine-inch squid, not the nine-foot squid.
0: Great. How about you, Ken? What was your gut reaction the first time you were acquainted with the Humboldt squid?
2: I, I think it was the same that uh, reaction that everybody had uh, out there in the field, and that was, whoa, uh, because uh, the first time I saw it was in a trawl net. We were out doing field work off of uh, the coast of California, and we caught them in our trawl nets, our midwater trawl nets, where we uh, trawl at night, and we're trying to catch these very small juvenile rockfish that are an inch or two in length, and. Instead of catching them, these large squids showed up in the nets instead. So it was quite, quite striking, and everyone on the vessel was like, Whoa, what is this? Jumbo squid, humble squid. So everybody came running down and wanted to touch them, wanted to take pictures of them, wanted to handle them. It was, uh, it was intriguing for everyone, and, and it was quite an exciting moment when we first started catching these in our nets.
0: And what year was this that you first started catching them in these juvenile rockfish survey cruises?
2: Uh, It was last year in 2005. It would be May, June of 2005 when they first started showing up in our midwater trawl nets.
0: So this has started a whole new project for you. Originally, this was a, a cruise to be monitoring... The abundance of juvenile rockfish from year to year and and all of a sudden there is this new feature into the into the study. Can you talk a little bit about what 's what 's come on from that
2: oh sure i 'd love to yeah we we 've been uh, looking at the annual abundance and reproductive success of uh, rockfish off the coast of California since one thousand nine hundred and eighty uh, three and the first time we 've s- started seeing the squid was last year during our two thousand and five annual survey. And uh, we thought it was uh, particularly interesting because uh, 2005 was the first year that we saw almost total reproductive failure and absence of uh, juvenile rockfish off the coast of California, especially in our core area in between uh, Point Conception and uh, Northern California. So uh, it was something very, very new to our survey And something quite intriguing, and it led uh, me and my collaborator, John Field, who's uh, working with me on this project, to uh, start to think about these squid and, and what impact, if any, they may be having on these juvenile uh fish that we normally catch and are these these rockfish, juvenile rockfish are important both uh, recreationally and commercially. They're very speciose along this coast and historically they've been very important uh set uh, family of fish. So uh, it got us thinking uh what are these squid up to while they're up here and, and why are we catching them and, and uh, all those associated questions.
0: So, how have you gone about this um, beginning of this study to try to find figure out why they 're up here
2: well uh, with any with any uh, sort of new critter that you start looking at first, you look at the literature and see what 's known. About the, uh, about the animal, and uh, subsequently found out that uh, Gilly, Dr. Gilly knew a lot about them, and he was right next door, so I went and talked to him personally about them, and then uh, got some ideas from him. My uh, collaborator, John Field, had some ideas of his own about looking at their diets because they're normally not up here in Northern California, Central California. So we thought, well, what in the world are they going to be eating and how much are they going to be eating, and uh, try to figure those things out. And since we were catching some in our trawl nets, and, uh, and also through squid jigging through the recreational fishing activities of some of the party boats in the area, we were able to get our hands on a few specimens, quite a few specimens. We've looked at over 500 stomachs now, and been able to see exactly what is in their stomach.
0: When I when I, I used to work on Catalina Island teaching marine science to students, and we used to dissect squid. And one year there was um a lack of Loligo opalescens, the smaller squid mm-hmm. species. So we were forced to go to the Humboldt squid. And boy, when we opened those things up, they had a stinky stomach, really smelly, red and liquidy. And what is that from? Or what are some of the other prey you would find?
2: Uh good question. We're we're really quite surprised and excited about how much (laughs) we've actually found in their stomachs i think we found uh, so far over 1200 different uh, prey items uh, that has uh, accounted for over 50 taxonomic groups so they're eating just about everything they can get their arms on uh, fish and invertebrates uh, even birds we found uh, sea urchin tests uh, euphousids or krill, obviously they're eating those too, uh, and uh, we're finding a lot. They, they seem to have a preference for uh, fish, uh, mesopelagic fish and pelagic schooling species such as hake or whiting, uh, rockfish, northern anchovy, and uh, interestingly enough, uh, one of the top five species that they prefer is each other. They're, they're cannibalistic.
0: Amazing. Dr. Gilly, have you studied much about the diet that Humboldt squid have, or what is, your work has mainly been involved in some, their amazing nervous systems? Can you talk a little bit about some of the incredible findings you've had with the nervous system of Humboldt squid? Well, I haven't actually done much with the
1: nervous system of Humboldt squid because early on I realized that to, well, I knew this all along, that to do experiments on the nervous system, you have to have a squid in a laboratory situation where you can put electrodes to it and wires and recording instruments and it's not so easy to do that on a squid in the ocean and that entailed catching Humboldt squid and bringing him into the lab. Um, of course they weren't in Northern California at the time, they were only in the Gulf of California which um, doesn't have neurophysiology labs set up. So <clears throat> I decided I needed to try to figure out how to bring the squids into the lab, that in turn led me to realize we don't really know anything about where they are in the ocean uh, as far as in the water column, what temperatures they prefer, and so forth. So in order to duplicate that in the lab to be successful at holding them, one has to learn about um, their environmental preferences in addition to their diet, because you have to feed them in the lab. So that sort of led to the field work and the tagging and um, all that phase. So I'm still waiting, actually, to learn how to... (laughs) hold them in the laboratory to bring them back to do some fantastic neurological work, which um, is in my mind at this point only. But as, as far as the diet goes, um, I've collected many, many squid diet stomachs uh, like Ken and have looked at them uh, casually, but uh, the main colleague that I work with in Mexico, Unai Marcaida, has um, analyzed probably... Uh, certainly as many or even more stomachs um, in, in his Ph.D. studies and since then from squid in the Gulf of California. And he finds they overwhelmingly, um, as Ken says, eat, prefer these small mesopelagic midwater uh, lanternfish um, as their favorite. And then uh, they also eat uh, various kinds of crustaceans, including krill. Um, In the Pacific Ocean off Baja, they love uh, little pelagic red crabs, which uh, this far north we never see except when they wash up on the beach after a strong El Nino. Um, But as he says, they're very diverse. They pretty much eat anything they can find, including each other. So um, there's certain similarities in their diet in the Gulf of California and in Monterey Bay system, or the the California system. But... Um, then there 's regional specialties that they seem to indulge in as well
0: so based on the the variety of the diet that Humboldt squid eat from what you 've seen from the dissections um, and the fact that they 're moving up north now, is there a concern about the type of impact they might have on populations of fishes and vertebrates up here? Or are they such a generalist? they kind of eat whatever they can? and they're, they're going to do eat whatever they can in abundance, but this could potentially have an impact on some of the local fisheries here. Is that something that you're looking into?
1: Um, I guess can it be more appropriate to ask about that, because he's actually working up here. From my point of view, uh, I think they do eat anything. They are generalists, but they certainly have preferences. They're highly intelligent animals that have choices, and the things that they find tasty... That are present and abundant, that are easy for them to catch, would be probably their algorithm that they use to decide what it is they're going to eat when. And if that happens to be juvenile rockfish or hake or some other commercially or uh, sport fishing important species, then uh, they'll latch onto those probably and decimate the population in the local area, I would think. And uh, if that population can be replenished from outside, then you can. Generate some kind of stable system, and I think that's going on now in the Gulf of California. Uh, they're there year-round, but they migrate between two feeding grounds: six months on, six months off. So uh, it's like they come in and uh, work over this ecosystem locally for six months, and then move on somewhere else for six months, and then come back again. So they sort of let the ecosystem recover. So it's kind of, and that may be an unusual situation. We don't we don't know really how much about how they're remaining resident in certain areas um, and how much they're migrating away and how they're using uh, these local ecosystems or even regional ecosystems like that.
0: Yeah, it seems a little early to tell, perhaps. Ken, what are your thoughts on that?
2: Yeah, it's, it's a, I think it's a really important question to ask as far as their impact on an ecosystem. It's one of uh, the things that uh, we're trying to find out in our studies is to try to elucidate what effect they're having, if any, on the ecosystem of the Northern California current system and uh, preliminary findings through modeling and through these diet studies, we're seeing that uh, there seems to be a huge difference in in sort of their place in the ecosystem, in the tropics versus uh, the place they are at in the Northern California current system known as trophic level. And we're seeing that in the tropics they 're a primary forage species they 're being eaten by uh, large fish such as tuna, commercially important fish such as tuna, and other other species that are uh, that are caught down there. But in the northern California current system, they seem to be the ones. Doing the eating. So uh, for the ecosystem up here off California, you know, payback might be hell. Uh, (laughs) I uh, really am starting to feel sorry for some of these species they are eating up here because you have this tropical species that's uh, very short-lived, high turnover rate, high metabolism, very energetic, very voracious predator, doesn't sleep. All it does is hunt and eat from the time it's it's, uh, born until until it dies Uh, and it's amongst a bunch of species that are very slow moving slow metabolism very low turnover rate some of these rockfish live to be over 100 years old and uh, it just sticks out like a sore thumb when you compare it to its peers out there in northern california current system so it could very well be having some detrimental impacts to a lot of these species that aren't used to the squid. They're they are not around here historically, so they don't know how to handle them, and they, it appears they certainly don't know how to escape from them, and they may very well decimate a lot of the species in the Northern California current system. It's too early to tell that at this point, but, but uh, it seems to be an indication that that may be happening i know over the last two years 2005 2006 from our annual juvenile rockfish survey those the last two years have been the worst two years we've ever seen for juvenile rockfish abundances since we've been doing the, the survey over the last 25 years so, there are uh,
0: other factors, though, <coughs> excuse me, that could be affecting the juvenile rockfish populations, aren't there?
2: Yes, what, absolutely. What there, are some of those other factors? Well, there could be climatic effects, environmental effects, and uh, also fishing pressure has, uh, has been shown to, uh, to affect the rockfish quite a bit. There's not as many older, healthy females in the system as there used to be, and, and those older, healthier females are the ones that produce very uh, robust young fish uh, in great numbers. So there are other mitigating factors for the the population declines in rockfish. But it's been very striking that the last two years have been so, so bad for these juvenile rockfish and it mimics the time that we are seeing large numbers of squid.
0: As well as reduced upwelling and reduced amounts of krill. So there's a lot of different factors here that I'm sure are being considered. Mm Now, one question I want to ask is... I want to make
1: a point... Yeah, go for it. Sidebar on that last one. Um, Yeah, in addition to the um, juvenile rockfish that Ken's been finding quite recently, even though they've been monitoring continuously for 20 years, um, after the 97, 98 El Nino, uh, researchers at MBARI doing the underwater ROV transect work uh, began seeing lots of Humboldt squid and fewer hake. So basically, if you look at the population of, um, or the numbers of hake sighted on their ROV transects versus squid, squid went up and hake went down kind of over the same time course um, during a time when the rockfish looked like they were holding their own, uh, according to Ken's work. And then now, uh, the hake are not seen very much at all, I think, with the Ambari transects, and now the rockfish seem to be disappearing. So uh, you know, one doesn't know whether the squid are kind of working their way uh, oh boy. down the food chain or what, but uh, they may be, or there may be something like that going on as well.
0: Wow, that's amazing to, to hear about that down in Monterey Bay as well. Now, this is a really big fishery in Mexico. Um, Ken was saying earlier that this is the largest fishery in the world by weight. Is that correct?
1: It's the largest cephalopod fishery.
0: Cephalopod fishery. And that's down in Mexico now if there's uh, it's,
1: it's mostly in South America, but okay. there's a good about a third of it maybe maybe a quarter of it comes from Mexico and three quarters from South America right now
0: okay. if we have more squid moving up the coast here of California, do you anticipate this becoming more of a commercial and recreational fishery on the west coast
1: It's certainly become a lot more of a recreational fishery If you look on the web on squid fishing in California, you'll find all kinds of uh, tours or charter boats, party boats going out. Uh, I've never been on them personally, but but Ken has and has done, is doing work with those with those um, folks. Uh, so that business, I, I think, has actually gotten pretty big uh, in the winters in California. Commercial fishing, I guess, there's still not an established uh, market and a reliability factor. People, fishermen, worry about. So I think the commercial fishing in California has been sort of um, local, small scale. Uh, hit-and-miss type things. I know Phil's and Moss Landing was handling them for a while. You occasionally see them in the Monterey fish market, but there's no serious commercial fishing effort right now that I'm aware of, but the numbers may justify such a such an effort, um, but biologically anyway. I don't know about economically and the factors that fishermen really have to work, worry about to make a intelligent decision like that. There's no good gear for them people are using now and so forth.
0: Right. They catch them on a jig line, right? It's like one at a time.
1: Well, in Mexico, they're caught on jig lines one at a time, but their labor's not the prohibitive factor. So <clears throat> um, in order to do that up here, you'd have to be paying a fisherman uh, relatively modest wages for, you know, pretty hard physical work of hauling up 50-pound squid one at a time on a hand line for 10 hours a day. Interesting. So, it could be done. There's automatic jigging machines that the Japanese have uh, made, and unfortunately, they're designed for a smaller squid. So, in in Mexico, they try to use these automatic jigging machines, and they can't. They're not. They don't have enough horsepower basically to haul up six jumbo squid at once. They uh, so they're trying to find smaller uh, examples of the Humboldt squid down there, juveniles, uh, to use those machines on. But otherwise, it's one squid, one at a time, by a hand line.
0: I see. Now, how do they how do they treat them? Because I understand uh, Humboldt squid have quite a bit of ammonia in their bodies, um, potentially to help them float and to move up in the water column. Yeah, yeah. They. I
1: don't. I don't know if it's really uh, rigorously established what the what the compound or compounds are that make them taste bad, but uh, they certainly have something, and that seems to vary with the climate and the seasons and what they're eating, and that's very poorly understood. Um, but uh, most of the catch in Mexico gets um, sold, right now anyway, to Asian-owned uh, fish squid processing, freezing plants. They boil it in some sort of um, red spice liquid, and that either overpowers the flavor that's bad or removes the flavor. It's uh, some kind of proprietary secret process, you know, and then they freeze it and ship that back to mostly Korea for final processing and distribution. Um, there's very little of the squid down there that's actually sold for fresh squid. The, most of the fresh squid you buy in California is, is calamari steaks, either in a fish market or a restaurant. Uh, if they're square blocks, uh, half-inch thick is almost certainly Humboldt squid, and it probably comes from uh, uh, factory ships operating off South America that Flash freeze the squid and, and things like that, and how they treat the squid on board those ships, if at all, I, I have no idea.
0: Amazing. The squid that
1: you buy in California is quite tasty, mm-hmm. but as I say, it does vary with where you catch the squid, even in the Gulf of California, and what season. And I suspect it has something to do with what the squid are eating.
0: Oh, what they're eating might determine how they taste, huh? Well, That's it's my a theory. <laughs> oh, the theory. Okay. Well, we might have to do a little edible uh, tasting up and down the coast. Go down to South America.
2: <laughs>
1: yes.
0: Can you want to add something?
2: Yeah, I've also heard uh, recently from some people that know uh, about the fisheries in Mexico. That uh, seems like the fishermen tend to uh, prefer the the smaller, medium-sized squid. Uh, seems like the larger ones may not may taste a little more sour. I'm not sure about that, but I, I heard that and uh, so I'm not sure what that's about.
0: I'm sure there's some local folks around here that have been doing some taste tests themselves, and I'm sure I'll be hearing from them next week. Um, we I've only d- heard, oh. I
1: heard once from someone up here that, uh, this was a few years ago, They someone caught some squid and gave them to him, and he gave them one squid one day, and it tasted really good, and then he gave them another squid the next day, and it tasted bad. And that day the squid were up on the surface off um Cypress Point or someplace around Monterey eating uh, anchovies in, uh, at the surface. So I don't know. And the day before that, they were caught deep. So whether they were really eating different things or so even this whole report is third-hand. So, uh, But that's, that's the only time I've heard of squid caught in the same place at the same time that tasted both bitter and good.
0: I can see where that could be a lucrative issue in, in establishing a fishery in the United States for for the squid. Well, it's just about one thirty, and we need to just take a quick short break. So, Dr. Gilly, please stay on the line, okay. and we'll be back in just a moment. Sure, will. Before we go into a little bit more about the current research that's being done, I just want to touch base on some of the amazing adaptations that Humboldt squid have—the chromatophores—and I noticed, you know, last year when they had them, somebody brought me. Um, some tentacles and the, and the pen, and on the tentacles, there are these chitinous rings on them. And I wanted to know if either of you could talk a little bit about how these chitinous rings are used and, and their hunting of their prey, and describe those a little bit. Dr. Gilly, are you there? Oh,
1: sure, yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm here. Um,
0: are those ki- are they called chitinous rings? Those rings on the tentacles? They
1: they are. I'm sure there's some very complicated Latinish morphological name for them, but I'm not aware of it. Perhaps Ken might know.
2: I don't. No, so I
1: don't. chitinous rings would do. Basically, um, they would look like a little uh, ring about a anywhere from a centimeter to a few millimeters in diameter, um, with little teeth pointing in toward the center of the circle, and the teeth would be directed slightly outward. When the ring is held in a sucker cup, that's an important fact to bear in mind. So each ring is held in a little sucker cup on the arm. Each sucker cup, in turn, is on a little movable stalk, and there's a little rim of uh, muscle sort of that covers the the teeth, and it can be opened up and expanded. So you have these little uh, individual suction cup machines with teeth that are used to grab onto prey and and hold it, Um, and... The, the thing that's remarkable is that these things are very sharp. they'll They'll pierce your own skin, human skin, if you let the squid grab onto your arm or leg. Um, but and they have thousands of these things on their arms. But uh, the amazing thing is that the squid, as we talked about before, mostly eating these little fish, one, two, three inches long. Um, so uh, they're obviously evolved and designed um, to handle much bigger prey. Uh, than they seem to be eating, and and one problem with doing stomach analysis right now is by looking inside the squid's stomach and seeing what's there, uh, you can't really identify the soft parts of fish. Like a squid could eat a salmon uh, and not eat any of the bones, and you might not know it by looking for uh, the hard parts of a salmon in its stomach. So um, it's possible that these squid that are equipped with these um, 10,000 sucker cups or whatever um, that are capable of handling big prey, actually are handling big prey, and we don't know about it.
0: I think I read um, that there was some documentation of a Humboldt squid taking out a thresher shark. Is that realistic?
1: <laughs> I've never heard of that. <laughs> uh, a lot of these observations uh, of squid eating big things are made in nets. So if you catch a uh, bunch of animals in a net, and, like a purse thing, and close them in in a restricted space... Uh, it's not exactly normal behavior. And squid have been known to uh, start eating yellowfin tuna and other large squid, uh, fish under those circumstances. So the thresher shark thing may be something similar to that. Uh, now, whether that, So that shows you the squid can, uh, you know, attack and eat something like that. Now whether it does it naturally is, is another question. Interesting.
2: Yeah, I just wanted to add that as far as size of prey, they, they are known to exhibit fraternal cannibalism. That's that's where they'll eat their brother, sister, cousin, whatever, attack them and eat them, and that's kind of rare in, in In the ocean. Most cannibalism is usually the older adults eating smaller ones of the same species. So as far as size, it's pretty well documented that they are able to eat animals at least the size of themselves.
1: Yeah, I, I think they prefer to try to pick on a smaller weakling, but it uh, doesn't much matter how big the squid is because you're just taking little bites out of it. So. If they find an old, weak, big squid, I'm sure they're just delighted to attack that as well as a feisty, younger squid.
2: They seem to also uh, like to take advantage of squid that are hooked on a jig and being reeled up. They tend to (laughs) follow it up and uh, beat on it and attack it and take chunks out of it as it's coming up. At least the first couple that we catch on squid jigs, they follow it up and uh, munch on it.
0: I could see this uh, animal being a great subject for a kid's game, some sort of (laughs) arcade game, because they have these multiple personalities that kind of exhibit, you know, in their survival here. Well, I'm really curious now. So we've talked a lot about um, some of their adaptations and their voraciousness as predators. And so the big question is, what are they doing up here um, outside their normal range and moving north? Is this what we're trying to find out through some of the studies you're doing?
1: Well, they're doing what they're evolved to do, and that is uh, eat heavily in a certain place and either remain there as long as the food remains on the table or move on somewhere else. And I think we're just seeing them passing through our area right now um, as part of their normal behavior as a species over their whole range, which goes from the tip of South America, now up as far as Sitka, Alaska, we know. So uh, if you think of an individual squid, it probably spends its entire day, searching around for the easiest place to find a lot of food, both up in the water column, up and down from the surface, maybe down to uh, 2,000 feet deep, but also horizontally over an area of maybe 30 miles diameter. Now, every squid is doing that, but every squid isn't an independent organism. They probably swim around in small groups of 100 or so, Uh, so each group of 100 squid is probably engaged in that same searching behavior and probably uh... if you look over the whole region you're gonna have thousands or tens of thousands of groups of a hundred squid just buzzing around like um, bees in a swarm searching all the time and if something good is found if a good area is found if there's some uh... area where there's a local burst of productivity so there's a lot of food all of a sudden the squid are gonna move in there very quickly that's their specialty i think is detecting new areas of productivity and they're the first to rush in and they'll remain as long as the food remains and then then they'll move on or they'll die and perhaps wash up on the beach Um, so that's the way I see them operating and I think right now off Monterey and these other areas to the north of us uh, we just happen to be in a productive place that has something that offers them and it doesn't necessarily have to be a you know something that's simple and obvious to see. It could be quite subtle because a lot of the things they eat are things we normally don't monitor or observe very much.
0: Do you think this is going to be a permanent movement up the coast here?
1: Uh, I, I don't know. Uh, they've been here now for 10 years off Monterey in the canyon system. Uh, I think as long as uh, productivity remains and there's things for them to eat and they don't deplete their environment, they probably will stay um on a long-term basis. Now, what long-term is, whether it's another 10 years or 20 years, 50 years, uh, I wouldn't guess they were present in the Monterey Canyon system in huge numbers in the 30s. So many that the state wanted, uh, fishermen were plagued by these things and considered them a pestilence and petitioned the state to have a bounty on their eradication. So um, then they disappeared again. So we don't understand really why they move and... um, disappear in, when they're in large numbers like this, the exact, specific, the exact specific, specifics of it. I'm sorry, it's easy enough to say they just move around and search all the time, but they're obviously queuing on some environmental features or productivity that um, if we could monitor and understand more completely, maybe we could understand uh, something about the squid movements, or conversely, if we understand the squid movements more, we can get uh, insights into what environmental factors uh, may be important to really consider and monitor.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just wanted to uh, echo what uh, Gilly said. They were ephemeral visitors to this part of California in the 30s for about five years and then vanished uh, to show up again, you know, 75 years later. So um, it's hard to say if they're going to be here for the duration. They may be ephemeral visitors once again. Or they may set up shop for a little while longer. I don't know. Maybe changing conditions, a warmer ocean that we're seeing these days may have something to do with them sticking around longer. Maybe once they deplete their food supply, they may may vanish like they did in the 30s. No one knows that at this point. Uh, I sort of uh, hope that uh, the thing that makes them disappear (coughs) is not the fact that they've... (laughs) denuded the whole california current system of these uh preferred species before they vanish
1: yeah i think it's really interesting to ask what they're going to do in alaska because there it's even more recent than california it's a very rich area uh they have the environmental feet there there one adaptation we didn't talk about was their tolerance of temperature so there they seem to be essentially tolerant of you know most temperatures that one can find in the ocean so that's that, per se, is not a limiting factor for them, but it's more of what they can find to eat. So, uh, But it would be great to have people monitoring presence of squid and what they're eating at all these different places that we've been talking about, from Alaska down to Chile. But uh, right now, basically, uh, Ken and I are the only people in the Northern Hemisphere trying to do very much with these squid as far as I'm nowhere, so uh, it's uh, obviously... Two very small groups uh, trying to look at a huge global uh, problem is, is
0: difficult. Hmm. Ken, did you want to add something? Uh,
2: I just uh, I wanted to add that that they're seeing uh, off Chile, Central Chile, a real problem with uh, decimation of hake, and the secretary of their fisheries down there has actually closed down a major portion of that very, very important, economically important fishery, the hake fishery down there. And it's all due, from their point of view, to these Humboldt squid and what they're doing to the hake.
1: Yeah, now again, Jennifer says, well, it could be climate change. And yeah, they, all these things are probably factors. So there's probably no one single factor that's the, the smoking gun. But when you have one big influence and another big influence simultaneously, maybe removing one or something uh, can make a big difference.
0: Yeah, everything's connected out in the room.
1: Yeah, right. Time.
2: I just wanted to also, uh, what you were talking about earlier and in, in what Gilly mentioned was some of their adaptability. Uh, they're not uh, constrained by temperature, and they also seem to have the ability to exploit the oxygen minimum layer in the ocean. And I know that's something that Gilly has seen and and looked at uh closely I'd, I'd like to hear from him about his tagging studies and about specifically about the adaptability of these squid in, in relation to that oxygen minimum layer i find it very intriguing
0: what can we just back up for our listeners what is the oxygen minimum zone in the ocean where is this depth and what is it
2: i'm actually going to defer to gilly on this since he's <laughs> a, he's he's a really a great expert on this uh,
1: I, I i would <laughs> I'd argue with Ken I'm not a great expert on oxygen minimum layer. I'm not an oceanographer, so what I know has come from uh talking to oceanographers and and first hand observations and uh monitoring it. but what it is basically in the eastern Pacific and in certain other parts of the world's oceans that are highly productive like the Arabian Sea, the Benguela system off africa um You have a place where you have deep water uh, close to continental shelves that are very steep, like off California, Mm -hmm. and um, you have a lot of surface productivity, like from upwelling in the California current system or the Peru current system, and that high surface productivity leads to lots of phytoplankton, lots of secondary productivity of uh, zooplankton, and a lot of fish and things eating that um, plankton, which gets... uh, put out as feces and dead animals of various sorts, dead organic matter, that dead organic matter sinks down in the water column and gets metabolized by microorganisms. And that leads basically to an extraction of the oxygen that decreases um, with depth and it reaches a minimum kind of, um, oh, uh, well, it's hard to really define the minimum, but uh, typically, the oxygen minimum layer would be a layer in the midwater where the oxygen concentration is less than 10% of what it is at the surface. And off California, that depth would be from about 600 meters deep to 800 meters deep. In the Gulf of California, it's much shallower. It's anywhere from 200 to 400 meters deep down to, again, about 800 meters deep. Uh, as you go north, that oxygen minimum layer goes deeper so off alaska it starts at around 800 meters and goes down to like a thousand meters so there's this uh, uh, geographical change in the oxygen minimum layer at different depths but in that oxygen minimum layer you're essentially in a world where uh... things that we're familiar with can't live because there's no oxygen for them to breathe even though they have gills they can't extract oxygen which isn't in the water so what you tend to find are few species uh, but huge numbers of individuals of a few species that have evolved special adaptations to live in this uh, hypoxic world. And one of these is the favorite food of the Humboldt squid, these um, lantern fish that we talked about, the one to two inch long little fish. Um, These little fish and most things that live associated with the oxygen minimum zone, a lot of them will migrate toward the surface at night and then retreat to the oxygen minimum zone in the day. So the idea is that by living in the oxygen minimum zone during the daytime, they can avoid predation from fish that are visual hunters. And then at night, they migrate to the surface, toward the surface anyway, to eat the plankton that's rich up there. And there's a huge number of organisms that, that, that do this, that either live in the minimum zone or at the upper edge of it especially. Um, The upper edge of the oxygen minimum zone actually has so many organisms in it during the day that you can see it with uh, echo sounders, and it's called the deep acoustic scattering layer. And then you can see that migrate to the surface at night. It's the largest migration of organisms on the planet, and it happens uh, every day.
0: And a lot of krill species hang out in that uh, as well, right? Yeah,
1: krill is another example of something that would hang out in this oxygen minimum zone during the day, and then maybe migrate up uh, toward dusk or the... Evening, so there's a lot of crustaceans, a lot of uh, other kind of cephalopods, a lot of fishes, um, and the numbers of these species uh, could be astronomically large and very dense, especially when they're concentrated down in this uh, layer in the daytime. So the humble squid have evolved the ability it seems to be able to use this resource um, they can the electronic tagging work we've done shows that they seem to penetrate depths that are seriously hypoxic, meaning 5% oxygen or something like that. And they'll be down there for 10 hours, moving up and down in the water column uh, just as rapidly as they seem to do uh, when they come toward the surface at night and probably continue feeding. Um, so they seem to be eating day and night and adjusting their position um, to either be in this oxygen minimum zone or just at the surface, just at the boundary of it, or, or in well-oxygenated water. So they, they can tolerate this low-oxygen environment. They seem to make use of it, which gives them a huge advantage over fish, like tuna, because tuna cannot use this environment. They, they, they'll die if they're under these conditions. So basically this oxygen minimum zone uh, is a huge uh, midwater environment uh, that basically is predator-free zone for the squid and they can use to their benefit, and it's a penalty to their competitors. So I think this uh, environmental feature is key to the success and spread of Decidigus. There's something going on with this environment that they're queuing on, either directly or indirectly, uh, that's involved with their spreading.
0: Now, can you, we have a, just about uh, eight minutes left. Can you talk a little bit about the tagging you're doing with uh, TOP, with the tagging of Pacific Pelagics, and what is the big question that you are trying to solve with the tagging? Is it the use of these oxygen minimum zones, or what is, what is the big question you're hoping to answer with your tagging work?
1: Well, the the big questions have been evolving as we go along, because when we started out, we didn't really have any questions, because we didn't know anything about the animal. So the big question was then was, can we tag it, and can we learn anything? And the answer was yes. Now, it's, well, yes. How do they, how long do they spend in the oxygen minimum zone? How fast are they swimming around there, actually? What are they doing there? Um, and... Uh, How much do they migrate horizontally? Uh, What are their long-distance migrations in the ocean? Uh, How are those coupled to oceanographic uh, changes in the oxygen minimum zone or other things um, that can trigger migration? So we're, we're, we're working mostly in the Gulf of California as our little model system. So whether those things we find there are applicable to the whole eastern Pacific, um, you know, that remains to be seen. So the big the big question is how these squid are operating over the whole basin of the eastern Pacific from Chile to Alaska. But I think, just like any other scientific question, if you look at small pieces, uh, you can learn something that can be then generalized to the bigger picture. Um,
0: yeah, the more pieces of information we're able to learn about, it seems like we can put the pieces of the puzzle together, but there are so many factors and everything that's going on here. It's going to be interesting to piece it together.
1: Well, yeah, that's why I say we need a lot, we need a lot more people in different places, uh, basically doing the same type of work Ken <clears> and I are doing in, California, in Monterey and in uh, the Gulf of California, uh, because those are just two little specks on their range just in the northern hemisphere, let alone the south. So I think to have 20 different labs looking at different geographical regions in some kind of um, systematic research program to see what the squid are eating, uh, who's eating them, when are the squid there, what are the oceanic conditions, both on the surface and deep in the ocean, um, and then see what kind of similarities emerge from different geographical areas would be really a, a really useful thing to do, and that just requires a lot of Funding an organization, which uh, at present is not in hand, so we're actually talking about trying to do something like that. But whether we succeed will remain to be seen. Okay.
2: Yeah, along those lines, uh, because there is a lot of interest and intrigue from uh, scientists as well as fishermen. We are starting to get more collaborators. I'd like to get more, but but uh, we've had some really great help from from fishermen who've collected stomachs for us, they've collected specimens for us, some of them hundreds of specimens, and uh, we really appreciate that, and there's more interest of people up along the northwest coast of the United States who are uh, collecting specimens for us, because, like Gilly said, not too many people are doing any concerted projects on these squids uh, as of yet, but there is a lot of interest, and, and we're looking to try to, to collaborate and, and do more, as, as what Gilly talked about. And I think that will be important if these squid remain around here and, and start to have uh, impacts or potential impacts on the ecosystem. It, it is going to be important that people work together to try to see what's happening because it's, uh, you know, they may have a real uh, effect on the economic importance, uh, fisheries of, of the United States.
1: Yeah, I think one can argue that it's, you know, wherever it goes, it restructures that ecosystem. Mm. So that's a really big deal. And, um, you know, even it's as important a thing as uh, a marine protected area restructuring the ecosystem. Uh, It's it's a huge factor that uh, one needs to understand. And I think, as Ken said, if squid remain, the researchers will come. Uh, I think we just happen to be doing it because... Uh, we think it's important to do. It's, these projects fell into our laps, whatever, um, and maybe a lot of people, you know, everyone has their own work, their own going on, and you think, well, I'm not going to, like, shift gears and work on the Citigus because it could be gone in six months or a year, and, and that may be true.
0: Interesting. If there are people that are um, listeners that are interested in, in somehow getting involved, um, either through funding or Um, collecting specimens, is there um, an email address or phone number that either of you would want to offer for anyone to contact you at?
1: Sure. I'm always happy to uh, answer any questions about squid uh, by email or uh, the the easiest or phone because I'm seldom answering the phone, but (laughs) uh, I'll give my email address. Or Do you have it? Sure.
0: Um, Actually, why don't you uh, announce it and
1: I'll re-announce it. Okay, because I have to pronounce it properly. It's Lignier which if you speak Serbo-Croatian, you understand. But if you don't, it's L-I-G-N-J-E at stanford.edu.
0: Excellent. So that's L-I-G-N-J-E at stanford.edu. Right. If anyone wants to contact you about other squid questions. Mm -hmm.
1: And, uh, yeah, we have volunteers and things like that at Hopkins Marine Station if people are local and want to... uh, Find out about that; those possibilities or just visit uh, the lab if they're passing through um, in Monterey. That That's fine, too. Just, just feel free to contact me.
0: Wonderful. Um, so it's, I, it's, this has been an interesting show. I, I have this vision of squid overtaking the world right now, <laughs> um, and they seem to have the capabilities to do that. Hmm. Um, we're just about – it's about time to wrap up. But one thing I'd like to ask both of you, um, since you've had a heavy role in researching this animal that could really have an impact on our ecosystem – um, what would you, what's the one thing you would like to tell listeners about their role in protecting the ocean as a whole? Um, the squid definitely have quite an impact, but we all as humans are having impacts too. And I just want to hear from both of you what you would like to say to listeners.
2: Yeah, Jenny, thanks for the question. It's a it's a good question. And one thing these squid bring to my mind, and, and it's sort of a way of answering your question, is that... There's so much connectivity out there in the ocean, and, and globally, everything is connected, and things can run downhill, and uh, everything we do in our daily lives is is ultimately connected to it, and I was just thinking uh, the other day about uh, growing up in, uh, in Arkansas on the farm I grew up on, you know, back in the 70s when I was uh, a real youngster. And uh, we're just now finding out that some of the pesticides and fertilizers uh, that ran down the Mississippi River and into the Gulf of Mexico is is now contributing to a large dead zone in the Gulf of Mexico. And uh, so even those people in the Midwest that are, are farmers have an impact on the ocean, and we see that there's a lot of connectivity out there, and we see it in the squid, too. They're not just in the tropics. They have connections we're not sure what those connections are yet, but they have connectivity to to this uh, Pacific Ocean Basin.
0: How about you, Dr. Gilliard? Your thoughts on...
1: I, I was going to say the same sort of thing. I'll just sort of try another angle. <laughs> um, and, and it, but it, it all reminds me of the, the way Ed Ricketts used to try to talk about uh, nature and that uh, things, you know, just are the way... They are, and, and something doesn't isn't necessarily good or bad. So, you know, and it's these connectivities and the context in which you view something that gives us a value judgment about whether something is good or bad. So, if you're a if you're a hake, the Citigus invasion is a bad thing. But if you're a sperm whale, it's a great thing because you love to eat them. So, um, I think the thing that the squid really teaches me, and I hope and helps others see, is that when you look at a given problem in the ocean it, it it shouldn't even be labeled as good or bad it's just the way things are and by trying to understand you know how things are operating maybe we can begin to approach why they're like that but it's it's extremely complicated and um i think that's just an important thing to bear in mind and that lends itself to simple explanations of uh what's going on like everything's due to well, first it was El Nino, now it's global climate change, but now overfishing is also a favorite thing. So uh, various groups just sort of latch on to one explanation and ignore the connections between all of them. And I think that's really a danger to our underst- increasing our understanding of, of the world at large, not just the oceans, but the um, relationship of man to each other and other countries and other political systems. Thank you. Everything.
0: Excellent. Thanks so much. Um, we're just out of time right now. We could talk about squid for another hour. But I want to just thank both of you, Dr. William Gilley and uh, Ken Baltz from NOAA Fisheries, for joining us today on Ocean Currents. It was great to hear from both of you about the uh, natural history and, and what we have to uh, keep our ears tuned open for as far as research goes. Uh, and I just want to say thank you to all uh, for listening. And And I wanted to just let you know the next show is January 15th, and we'll be talking to someone from the San Francisco Ocean Film Festival for part of the show. The San Francisco Ocean Film Festival is January 19th through the 21st in 2007, and it is an excellent event to um, see some independent films about the ocean. So thanks for joining us today on Ocean Currents, and keep your eyes open for squid.